Were the Toronto Blue Jays the first MLB team in Canada? Nope. That accolade goes to a franchise who developed one of the best player development systems of all time. That's right. We're conducting an autopsy of the Montreal Expos. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. Today's topic I'm really excited to bring to you. We are going back to the well of talking about baseball teams that are no longer with us. This is another installment in our baseball team autopsies series. This is the third installment of this that we've done in three months. We've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners about how much they've enjoyed this this thread that we're following. Uh, For those of you who are maybe new to the show, we have already jumped into discussing the Houston Colt 45s and what happened to them. And then we went over to Seattle and talked about the Seattle Pilots and what happened to that franchise. And today we're traveling north of the border to Montreal. And there is absolutely so much to discuss here when we look through the history of this franchise. The Expos were the first Major League Baseball franchise located outside the United States. They lasted for a long time, unlike some of the other clubs we look at that maybe had a three to seven or eight year run. This team played from 1969 until 2004. They had a very long footprint in the league. They had an amazing player development system. They had some of the top names in baseball. If you look across the board, if you look at Hall of Famers, players that we know that are synonymous with popularizing the game even today, they spent some amount of time with the Expos. There are nine players who wore the uniform that have been elected to the Hall of Fame, and there's probably more to come too. players that are coming up on the ballot who started their careers early on with Montreal. So overall, ultimately, we're going to talk about all of the good things that Montreal brought with their time in the MLB. But just like the other defunct teams we've looked at, we're going to see a pattern continue to emerge related to their demise. And really it came down to, in this case, a combination of stadium issues and poor long-term planning and just not being able to have the right things happen when you need them to happen in order for a franchise to survive. So without further ado, let's remember and celebrate the Spos, Nos Amores, the Montreal Expos. Baseball in Montreal predates the Expos by quite a long period of time, so it's really important that we start our story at the beginning. The first professional baseball club to pop up in Montreal actually began all the way back in 1890. There was a club established called the Montreal Canadiens, not the hockey team, a separate baseball team with the same name, and they were members of a group called the International Association. The International Association was a group of teams that existed uh, both in Canada and the northern United States. So we saw clubs in this league from Michigan, Ohio, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. 
Now, unfortunately for the Canadians, they joined this association in 1890, which was the last year of the league's existence. They had about a 20-year run, but 1890 was the year that we saw the International Association disappear, and so the Montreal Canadiens only lasted for one season, and then the club disbanded. Then we have to fast forward to 1895, where we see another attempt to establish a professional baseball club in Montreal. But unfortunately, those efforts never materialized and an actual team was never formed. So then we have to jump to 1897. And this is where we see the establishment of a club known as the Montreal Royals. The Royals were members of the Eastern League, another association that existed mainly with northern states from the United States and clubs from Canada. And the Montreal Royals had a long run. They played for 20 seasons from 1897 to 1917, were very successful in the Eastern League, and enjoyed a lot of popularity in the city. Now, the Royals lasted for another 11 years as part of the International League. Then they were bought by the Brooklyn Dodgers, who decided they wanted to fold the team into their organization and make them a minor league affiliate. And what we saw once the Dodgers took over was the club really expanded in terms of its success and big names that came through the area playing for the Montreal Royals. So Dodgers management really made all the difference managing this club from Montreal. We had so many big names spend time with this franchise on their way up to Brooklyn's starting lineup. Let me just give you some names of household players, household names that spent time in Montreal during this time where the Brooklyn Dodgers owned them. Sparky Anderson spent time in Montreal. Roy Campanella, Gene Motch, Tommy Lasorda, Jackie Robinson spent time in Montreal. And the great Roberto Clemente also spent time playing for the Montreal Royals. And people often forget Roberto Clemente was drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he played almost the entire 1954 season in that city. So there is a long history of very successful players from early on in the city's history that spent time in Montreal playing for their baseball club. Now, From 1939 till about 1960, the Montreal Royals were an official minor league team for a pro club. What happened, though, was in 1960, we saw baseball again disappear in Montreal. And that was because of the fact that the Brooklyn Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles in 1958. And for two more seasons, they tried to make this work. But you can certainly imagine the logistical and geographical issues that popped up from having a team based on the West Coast and having their minor league team based on the East Coast. And remember, we're in the 1950s here, so it wasn't as simple as hopping a quick flight for a lot of these players when they were called up or sent down. So the decision was made by Brooklyn that they were going to have to find a a more suitable AAA team in, an, in the ge- geographical location uh, to be able to make sense now that they moved. So Brooklyn actually sold the team in Montreal, and the city was left with no baseball presence again in 1960. Now, immediately after losing the Royals, the city of Montreal decided, we want a team back in the city. And several highly influential figures decided to go to work to bring a team back to the city. Specifically, 
Montreal's mayor at the time, Jean Drapeau, please excuse my poor, poor French, uh, and city executive Jerry Snyder began immediately putting together a proposal to send to Major League Baseball to request an expansion team in Montreal. Not just a minor league presence, but a major league presence. They felt that they had earned it. They had become synonymous with so many big names in baseball. They had established a winning presence in the city. They had been a supportive minor league club. And now it was time to bring a big league club to the city. Now, they submitted their request to Major League Baseball, and they had certain things that went their way once they submitted this request. For instance, Walter O'Malley, the guy who owned the Brooklyn Dodgers, was on the National League's board in charge of choosing expansion sites for new teams. And he greatly supported putting a team back in Montreal because for many years, the Royals had served his club very um, efficiently. And so Walter O'Malley, he put his rubber stamp on it and the MLB decided, okay, we're going to put a team in Montreal but it's going to cost you $10 million. That's the, the fee. We're going to let two expansion teams join the league in 1969. So Montreal, if you can come up with the $10 million, then you can have an expansion club. And really, it came down to the fact that this is a great opportunity for the city, but they needed to come up with the money. So remember the mayor, John Drepo, and the executive chairman of the city, Jerry Snyder, they were ecstatic for this opportunity and they immediately went to work to put together an ownership group to come up with the money and work out the logistics. So they put together a group of financiers from the local area and one of the individuals that was part of this group was a guy named Charles Bronfman. Charles Bronfman was a well-known Canadian businessman. He was the fifth richest Canadian in the country at that time. He had a family business that was well-known called Seagram's Distillery. I believe Seagram's is still an alcoholic beverage that you can enjoy today. Uh, he was one of the main guys that put money forward to see this new expansion club take shape in Montreal. So an ownership group was formed. They came back to the MLB and said, look, we've got the 10 million. We're going to put together a new stadium for this expansion team, but we want the city to pay for some of it. And this is where there was a little bump in the road because what happened was the city and this new ownership group could not come to an agreement on how much each side would pay. And we got all the way to 1968, a year before this expansion team was supposed to start playing. And there was still no stadium deal in place between the ownership group and the city. And the MLB started getting really scared about this. How can we support a team, a new team entering the league without an actual stadium to play in? Not that we have seen this not be an issue before, right? If you listen to previous episodes about the Colt 45s and about the Seattle Pilots, stadium um, decisions were at the heart of the rocky starts for both of those franchises and ultimately led to the demise of both. Although in Houston's case, we did see them you know, evolve into the Astros franchise that still exists today. But stadium issues were at the heart of both those teams' struggles. And here we're seeing another uh, very familiar face pop up here in terms of Montreal's start, and that's where are they going to play? So it's 1968. The MLB is obviously getting cold feet because it doesn't seem like this ownership has their um, stuff together, their ducks in a row. 
and the MLB actually started making plans to give that slot to take it from this Montreal group and give it to another ownership group that had formed in Buffalo, New York and give them the expansion slot for 1969. They already had a stadium in place in Buffalo. They had the money. And so there was this kind of, look, Montreal, if you can't get your stuff together, we're going to go with another city. Well, a last minute deal was put together by remember Charles Bronfman, who was one of the main uh, money uh, backers in the the ownership group, he came forward and said, look, okay, we have the Olympics coming up in 1976 in Montreal. We're already talking about a stadium. It's going to take a little more time, MLB, but I will put forth my own money over a million dollars to make sure that there's a stadium for this new club. There's a park at the center of Montreal called Jerry Park. It's a and there's a community field there that holds 3,000 people. It was basically a recreational space. Uh, we had Charles Bronfman say to the MLB, I'll spend my own money to expand that community field and turn it from a 3,000-seat field into a 30,000-seat field, and that's where the team can play for the first two years, and during that time, we'll work out all the details for the full stadium. And the MLB agreed to this, which you can see the rocky start that was placed in front of this new franchise as they began. But the MLB agreed to it. And Montreal was one of four teams that was added to Major League Baseball in 1969. There were two teams added to the National League. We had this Montreal club. And then also the San Diego Padres came in during this time. We also saw on the West Coast, the Seattle Pilots become one of those teams that also Uh, came into existence. And again, if you're interested in learning about Seattle's uh, defunct squad, the Seattle Pilots, we did an episode on that. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out. So Montreal has a big league team. Congratulations. Now the question is, how did they come up with the name Expos? Where did that come from? Well, when the team was established, there was obviously a lot of excitement around what do we name the team? Obviously, the most popular choice was the Royals, because you had the Montreal Royals minor league team exist for so many years and have so many big-name players that that would have been the obvious choice, right? Well, remember, in 1969, there were four teams added, and there was another city that had already acquired the rights, that had already lobbied, had already filed the paperwork to have the name the Royals, and that was the team from Kansas City. So Montreal, unfortunately, was lower on the pecking order, and they couldn't use the name Royals because Kansas City had already taken it. So they had to go back to the drawing board. They did some some fan submission surveys. They took some information. They really tried to think about what do we call this club. And some of the names considered were the Voyagers, the Nationals. But the team ultimately decided to choose the name Expos. Why? Well, it was a name that they felt could be spelled easily and the same in French and English, so it wouldn't cause any confusion. Remember, Montreal is a largely bilingual city, so you have to appeal to both language groups. So the Expos were chosen because of the similarity in spelling in English and French, and it was in recognition of a very major event that had happened in the city in 1967, just two years prior. Uh, The Montreal, the city of Montreal hosted the 1967 World's Fair, the 67 Expo. So the Expos were a tribute to the Expo that occurred in 1967 for the World Fair. And that's where the name originated. Uh, 
So it's official. We have the Montreal Expos, and they are ready to begin play. And their first game is held on April 8th, 1969. And their very first game, they ended up winning. It was an 11-10 victory over the New York Mets at Shea Stadium. This was a big moment for Major League Baseball because this was the first Major League team in Canada, and it was also the first foreign team to be included in the MLB, so a team outside the continental United States. So, And it's, it's an exciting moment. It shows the growth of baseball. So we see them start off on a strong point. The club th- begins their history with a win on the road, and when they go back to play their first home game at Jerry Park, their new stadium, that had been converted from a community field to a full-time major league ballpark, which was supposed to be temporary. They also won that game, and that occurred on April 14, 1969. They won 8-7 over the St. Louis Cardinals. Now remember, Charles Bronfman had put up money to transfer the park from a 3,000-seater to a 30,000-seater, and the fans showed up for this first home game. Um, They saw their team win in front of a fully packed crowd. And this was the first MLB game played outside the United States, this home game. So very exciting moments in the uh, history of the MLB that occurred in the first season for the Montreal Expos. Now, despite these two early wins for the team and they started off strong in the first month, things really cratered as the season went on. The Montreal Expos first season ended in disaster I don't think there's any other way to say it. They tied for last place with their fellow expansion team, the San Diego Padres, with a record of 52 and 110. But that did not stop the fans from being excited about having a professional team in Montreal again. We saw Expos attendance eclipse a million people in their inaugural season. Only half of all the ML teams that MLB teams that same season saw that many fans. So automatically, we see the Expos launch into the upper tier of fan support in terms of attendance right in that first year. Now, the first couple of years were rough for Montreal. It certainly wasn't uh, any, any sort of uh, competition for uh, making the playoffs with this club. But there was some early highlights that popped up. One of those was a guy named Rusty Staub. He joined the club as part of the expansion draft, and he immediately became the face of the franchise. So this young player, Rusty Staub, he actually represented the Expos at the All-Star Game during their first three seasons in existence. So even though the team wasn't playing very well, Fans were more than happy to show up to see this player play. But unfortunately, things ended very rocky for Montreal very early on with this star player that they had on their team, Rusty Staub. And this was certainly a sign of things to come in future years for Montreal in terms of having fan favorites stick around. Before the 1972 season, so we're talking about going into the fourth season of the club's existence, he was traded unexpectedly. Nobody saw it coming, and the fans were rightfully very upset. He was the fan favorite. He was the face of the club. Rusty Staub had really gone to immerse himself in the city as well. He had learned French to be able to immerse himself in the culture, and so this guy who was the face of the club was ended up being traded away very early on 
in the club's existence. So now there's not a big name that's tied in to the club. And we see for about a decade, just really a middling existence for the Montreal Expos. They didn't have a winning season until 10 years into their history. So in 1979, that was the first time we saw them really become a competing squad. But another pattern started to emerge during these early years of Montreal's existence that really stuck with the club for the long term was that they developed an absolutely amazing player development system. And early on, the Expos realized very quickly that they were going to have a lot of trouble attracting big name free agents to come and play in the city. And that was for a combination of reasons. Some we're going to talk about later on. I mean, Montreal is a cold weather city. They have to deal with bad weather. We had a stadium situation that was less than ideal, both the current Jerry Park and the future park that's being built, which we're going to talk about. So you had a poor stadium, you had bad weather. It wasn't a desirable place that players wanted to come to. So Montreal learned very, very quickly that if we're going to be a competitive ball club, we have to find a way to build an excellent farm system where we can find and develop ball players. And that's exactly what Montreal did, and it really has become one of their hallmarks as an MLB franchise. This is a team that really knew how to be able to take young players and turn them into excellent, excellent ball players. So just to give you an example, early on in the team's history in the 1970s, they developed names like Larry Parrish, Gary Carter, Ellis Valentine, Warren Cromartie, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines. These are all guys that Montreal drafted or signed and then developed and they turned into all-stars. And if you fast forward later on to the 90s and into the 2000s, we see names like Andres Galarraga, Marquise Grissom, Larry Walker, Randy Johnson. And, you know, Randy Johnson, of course, got traded to Seattle in 1989 as a prospect. But, oh my goodness, just so many big names. Let me keep going. Other names that were developed by the Montreal Expos uh, you know, player development system. We had Cliff Floyd, Vladimir Guerrero, Jose Vidro, Moises Alou, Jeff Reardon, Pedro Martinez. The list can continue to go on. I tried to pick the big names just to make my point. I mean, overall, there are five current Hall of Famers that made their major league debuts with the Montreal Expos. That's Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, Randy Johnson, and Vladimir Guerrero. Not shabby at all, right? And then on top of that, if you were to visit Cooperstown today, there are three individuals that have been inducted into the hall that officially wear Expos caps. That's Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, and Tim Raines. So the player development system became synonymous with Montreal baseball, and they developed it partly out of necessity to be able to become a competitive franchise. So the early years, even though they were tough, we see things start to build up in the city of Montreal. They're working towards something. They've found a way to be able to find and develop talent. And that did produce some exciting moments for Montreal fans. We're going to delve into some of those exciting moments, those highlights from Montreal, the Montreal Expos' history. And then we're going to jump into the untimely and unfortunate demise of the franchise and what caused that. But first, we have to take a quick break. We're going to go to the seventh inning stretch. Stay with me now. We'll be right back. 
If you have a business, you really need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running, though? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design. And they have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com slash free. Promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Remember, today we are discussing the Montreal Expos, their legacy, and the reasons for their demise. So jumping right back into things, Montreal's start in the league in 1969 was a bit rocky in terms of success. We saw 10 years pass before the team was finally able to put together a winning season. And that occurred in 1979. They had a great year. They finished 95 and 65, and they were only two games behind the season's World Series champion that year, which was the Pittsburgh Pirates. This is where we see things really start to take off for the club. And 1979 was also an exciting moment because not only did Montreal see their first winning season, but we also saw that year over 2 million fans show up to support this club. And that was an exciting moment for baseball overall because it signified that baseball was really growing and flourishing north of the border. So we know that the player development system was incredibly strong in Montreal, and that started to reap uh, benefits going into the 1980s. So we see them start to slowly become contenders during this new decade. And it really started with names that I had mentioned before, but guys who were turning into household names in Major League Baseball. Let me give you some examples of that. Gary Carter was a guy that they drafted. He was an all-star as a rookie in 1975. We get into the 1980s. He's become one of the best catchers in baseball. We saw Andre Dawson. Another guy drafted by the Expos, he won the Rookie of the Year in 1976. By the time we get to the 1980s, he's a full-blown all-star, one of the top players in the league. And so those two guys really headlined this club going into the new decade. So in 1979, they won 95 games. In 1980, they won 90 games, and they finished one game behind the Philadelphia Phillies for the division crown. Now, Going back, Gary Carter, he won his first of three gold gloves in 1980. He finished second in the MVP race behind Mike Schmidt. In 1981, we saw another major player really develop on the Montreal Expos roster, and that was a guy named Tim Raines. He was a rookie in 1981. He finished second for Rookie of the Year, and he hit 304 and stole 71 bags. 
So the Expos that year in 1981 were able to make the playoffs. Unfortunately, they were eliminated by the Philadelphia Phillies before falling in the National League Championship Series. 1981 was a big year for Montreal because it was the only year that the Expos made the playoffs. And they didn't make it all the way, and that year was considered a major disappointment for the city because of the amount of talent that was on the club. Now, I have to stop and remind you, you may be asking yourself, how could you consider Montreal uh, a success if they only made the playoffs one year? How could the 1980s be considered a good time for them? Well, keep in mind, the MLB's playoff system was different 40 years ago, and we only saw up until 1969, one team emerge. We saw the National League Championship Series, or the Championship Series, I should say, played between the top two teams in each league. And then we saw a division series added later. But it was very common during this time for players or teams, I should say, to win 90 to 95 games and still not make the playoffs because they didn't get the top spot in their division. And so unfortunately for the Expos, they were in a tough division. They were with the Mets, they were with the Phillies, and those were good years for both those clubs. And so it was not uncommon for Montreal during this time to have excellent records at the end of the season, but not make the playoffs. And that was a really frustrating thing, I think, for the fans. But 1981 was kind of the high watermark for this club. Not only was the franchise filled with uh, emerging names in baseball, but they also made the playoffs, even though they weren't able to make a run all the way. So throughout the 80s, we saw teams that certainly finished above 500, played very well, but unfortunately were not making the playoffs because of that restricted playoff format. And then we go into the 1990s, and we see kind of a a changing of the guard where a lot of these players in the 1980s were getting older. They left because of free agency or they were traded. Some examples of that, Tim Raines, who had been uh, one of their top players in the 1980s, who was a rookie in 1981, he was traded to make room for another up-and-coming prospect, Canadian-born Larry Walker. We saw Marquise Grissom and Moise Zalou become prospects that started to emerge from the Montreal Expos' player development system. We saw Pedro Martinez, one of my favorite players of all time, win his first Cy Young Award with Montreal in 1997, another product of their development system. In 1992 and 1993, with all of these emerging names, the Expos won 87 and 95 games, respectively. 87 in 1992, 95 wins in 1993. And fans started to come back. There was a lot of excitement around this club that was emerging again. But it was not meant to be. It didn't last. We didn't see the club able to make the playoffs or make any headway. And attendance numbers started to dip again. And unfortunately, the end of the 1990s was the beginning of the end for the Montreal Expos. So that's a quick breakdown of some of the highlights of the team during their existence. So many big names made their way through Montreal. And the club had some great years, even though they suffered from this uh, contracted playoff format that didn't lead to many playoff berths. So here we are at the end of the 90s. We see attendance dipping. They're not able to hold on to their big-name players as they become major stars, can't afford to keep them, or the interest is to go elsewhere. 
And so the end of the 90s signaled a unfortunate dip for the club. Now, what happened? What caused the Expos to fold as an organization? Well, just like other episodes of Baseball Team Autopsies, we break down what we think were the reasons why the club was not able to stick around. And so there are three reasons why we feel that Montreal was not able to keep the Expos. The first one comes down to stadium issues, and it usually always does. So let me just take you through a quick run-through of what the Expos had to deal with in terms of their facilities. Now, if you go back with me to the beginning, I had mentioned one of the things that kept a club going to Montreal was that one of their main uh, financiers, Charles Bronfman, agreed to put forth money to expand a community park in the center of Montreal from a 3,000-seater to a 30,000-seater. And that was just to appease Major League Baseball's officials and say, look, we've got a stadium and we're working on a better one. So the plan was to play in Jerry Park, this converted community field, for three seasons. But that ended up taking eight years for Montreal to get an actual full-blown stadium. Now, why did that take so long? Talk about an overrun, huh? Well, the plan had turned into, okay, we'll let them play at Jerry Park for three years. We're building a new facility because we're hosting the Winter Olympics excuse me, in 1976. So this Olympic stadium that was being built in Montreal hit multiple cost overruns. There were several construction issues. So we saw Montreal have to really wait a very long time to get into a suitable ballpark to play. And Jerry Park, even though there's a lot of nostalgia around it, if you're a member of the free weekly newsletter, please sign up because I'm going to include some links to Jerry Park so you can see kind of the nostalgia that exists amongst Montreal fans. There were some neat things that happened at the park that gave it a a unique culture, that gave it a unique atmosphere that, you know, there was some love for that park, even though, like I said, it was a community field that was converted last minute to host a professional club. There were issues with this stadium. Let me give you some examples of that. The grandstands were completely exposed. There was no roof over the grandstands. So that means that you had people showing up to watch games and they were completely exposed to the elements, including in the grandstands. And we've seen seen stadiums have roofs on the grandstands since 100 years before we're talking now, right? So... We, we see that uh, it was a tough thing to go watch a game in Montreal. Remember, the city is really cold in the spring because of the long winters, and it gets really cold again in the fall, starting in September. And that led to a lot of issues with games being able to be hosted at all in this outdoor park. The Expos actually had to postpone a number of early season games in April because the field just wasn't ready. Um, Just to give you an example of that, in 1970 into 1971, so this is a year into their existence, that winter, Montreal got 150 inches of snow, (laughs) and the groundkeepers had to remove almost 4,000 truckloads of the white stuff just in order to be able to start the 1971 season. There were jokes about the groundskeepers painting the field green because the, the, the grass was still frozen to begin the 1971 season. And, you know, we we remember these moments like with Wrigley Field where fans were able to 
go to the tops of some of the surrounding buildings to be able to watch the games illegally. Well, at Jerry Field, it was not uncommon in these early years for fans to be able to climb to the tops of snowbanks outside the stadium to be able to watch the game. That's how high the snow was piled. So we had issues with the stadium being exposed to the elements. Another issue that cropped up very early on was the way that the stadium was situated. When the sun was going down, it would set directly in the face of first baseman. And a lot of times they would have to stop the game to allow the sun to go down completely because it was impossible for the first baseman to be able to see the ball. So we had another issue pop up. The grandstands ran almost tightly parallel to the foul lines, which means that if you were sitting there, you would have to crane your neck either completely to the left or the right to be able to watch most of the action. So the way the field was situated was not great for the fans. Jerry Park also had major issues with the grounds. There are stories from several players that hated playing there because the field was so bumpy. It wasn't smooth and it caused a lot of issues with ground balls or being able to move smoothly tripping of players going for balls so there was <laughs> there was a quote that i found that i thought was very funny from a, a player who was uh, reminiscing about their time at jerry park and that individual said quote the infield had bumps that would drive infielders to tears and sometimes to the hospital end quote so, yeah, there were issues on the playing field. There were issues for the fans. There were issues with the elements. Jerry Park just wasn't a great stadium. And remember, it was a hastily constructed facility. It was a community field that they converted into a major league park. Of course, there were issues around that. But, you know, there had always been some talk about eventually turning it into a proper stadium. And that was because Jerry Park was in a really favorable location. It was near the train station. It was in the center of the city. You know, it really uh, could be a cultural landmark for Montreal. But that never materialized, unfortunately. So eight years into their existence, Montreal is dealing with these stadium issues. And then they finally get to move into their new stadium, Olympic Stadium, and that wasn't much better. I mean, of course it was better than some of the things I mentioned, but man, it still had its issues. So let's run through some of the stadium issues they had to deal with in their new park, Olympic Stadium. Well, <laughs> they got to move in. Their first game was played on April 15th, 1977, and this was the home of the Expos all the way until their demise. So this, this became the uh, permanent residence for them. The crazy thing about Olympic Stadium is that remember that it was built as kind of a multi-event facility. It was meant to host Winter Olympics games. But the plan was always to eventually, after the Winter Olympics, to host the Expos. But the team was never consulted on the stadium's location, the design or the construction, even though they were meant to be the team, the facility's primary tenants. So we had a stadium that was built partly for a baseball team and the baseball team had no say in its actual design. And that really summarizes why Olympic stadium was not a great place to play. Let me give you some examples of what the Expos had to deal with playing in this park. Number one, Again, it was built for Winter Olympic events, not for baseball. There was no roof installed when the Olympic Stadium opened. So we saw issues 
with the same thing that they had to deal with the Jerry Park, where early season games or late season games were subject to weather. And, of course, it was uncomfortable for fans because you're having to show up in very cold weather to watch baseball. Now, Olympic Stadium did finally install a roof, but they didn't do it till 1987. So that's a full decade after the team moved in. We saw players frequently at risk of injury because of the padding that was put on the outfield fences. Remember, baseball was an afterthought. So the uh, owners of the park put very thin padding on the outfield walls and along the infield. And it was not uncommon for players to get injured running into these walls, chasing fly balls or ground balls. And so we had injury risk go up very high for players when they were visiting the club and for Montreal's own players. We saw a uh, issue with the turf that was put down. They used fake uh, grass in Olympic Stadium, even though it was an open stadium for much of its um, existence for the first 10 years. And they used a really thin, poorly designed AstroTurf. And that also caused a lot of issues with how the ball was played, about players getting injured, trying to perform on it. So it's not a safe ballpark from the player's point of view. The other issue, the outfield seats were really far from the playing space. Again, it wasn't built as a baseball stadium, so it didn't have that intimacy. The entire upper deck seats were so far away from the action that they couldn't even really use them. They couldn't sell tickets because fans couldn't really see what was going on. So we see just problems with fans being able to sit in certain places The park was huge. It held 66,203 people, again, built for the Olympics. But the problem was is that certain parts just weren't conducive to watching baseball. So, you know, we would see sections of the outfield roped off. We would see the upper deck seats roped off because they were so far away. And that wasn't such a big deal, I think, early on. But as baseball became more commonly televised, Anytime you watched an Expost game, it looked like the stadium was empty because of all these seats. But it wasn't necessarily that fans weren't showing up, although there were lean years for Montreal. Um, There were just so many seats in the stadium that it was really hard to make it look like you ever had a full house. So it got so bad for Montreal in this uh, Olympic stadium that they were playing in that free agents were known to not even consider playing there because they didn't want to play at Olympic stadium. They wouldn't even consider Montreal as an option to go and play there. Opposing managers would lobby major league baseball to leave road games to Montreal off of their list because they didn't want to play there. They were worried about the safety of their players. They didn't feel like it was worth the trip. So this was continuing, a uh, continuing issue throughout Montreal's uh, history. It got so bad that by 1990, the Expos team president said that Olympic Stadium was, quote, not suitable as a baseball venue, end quote. And he started actively campaigning for a new stadium. Took him long enough, right? But the problem was is that Olympic Stadium cost Montreal so much money to build in the first place. They built it for the Olympics. And they were paying off the debt for this stadium all the way up into 2006. They were paying for the stadium even after the Montreal Expos left, after they folded. It cost the city over $1 billion for that park. So the whole experience left such a sour taste in the city's mouth for the residents and the policymakers that when there was actual serious talk that popped up about a new stadium, 
nobody was really excited about doing that because of the horrible experience that had come up with the Olympic Stadium issues. And just to bring up this point too, Olympic Stadium is still there, folks. It's, it's being held right now for venues, you know, expos, things like that. Not the Montreal Expos, but <laughs> other events. Uh, we saw Montreal's Major League Soccer team play there for a time while their stadium was being built. It's still there. It's just not being used for baseball and probably never should have been in the first place. So the first reason for the Montreal Expos denies is undeniably their stadium issues. They were never able to put together a park that was uh, inviting to the fans or to the players. And a ballpark means a lot to the city. It means a lot to a franchise. And it can be an important part in attracting players to your team. So the whole thing was a mess. So reason number one for the Montreal's demise, the stadium issues. Reason number two for Montreal's demise was, believe it or not, the baseball strike that happened in 1994. Remember, Montreal had only made one playoff appearance throughout their history going into the 1990s. That was that failed 1981 season. They had several winning seasons, but that didn't convert into playoff berths. And so what we saw in 1994 was a really exciting moment for Montreal baseball. And the fans were coming back and they were so excited to see this new crop of young players that had developed uh, early on in the 1990s. It, the 1994 Expos, the, the team that was playing that same year that the strike broke out, that's arguably the best team in franchise history. Let me just give you a rundown of the roster that year. You had Pedro Martinez in his rookie year. You had Larry Walker. You had Marquise Grissom. You had Moises Alou. You had Ken Hill, John Wedelin. All of these guys were playing for the Expos, and they had built the best record in baseball midway through the season. They had won 70 games. I think there were 70 and 41 going into July. And then the player strike hit, and the season ended early and the World Series was canceled. And that effectively ended the Expos' best chance at winning a World Series title. It ended prematurely because of the strike. And that strike really hurt overall interest in the game, especially in the city of Montreal. The strike overall had a negative effect on baseball at large. We talked about this in one of our bonus episodes about how the current strike, can baseball afford to go through another one of these issues? Because the home run uh, excitement isn't something they can replicate again. And that's really what helped baseball climb back after the first strike. Anyways, I digress. So we see the fallout that happened with that 1994 team not able to realize what could have been a World Series run. And that led into financial issues, that 1994 strike for the team. Let me just run through that real quick, right? So the general manager for the Expos at the time, Kevin Malone, after the 1994 strike, the owner of the team ordered him to cut payroll dramatically. Claude Bruchot was the name of the um, owner at the time, and he was also upset that the strike-shortened season had really cost him a ton of money, so he went to his general manager and said, I want you to cut the fat from the team. And we saw in a three-day span, we saw Larry Walker, we saw Ken Hill, we saw John Wetlin, we saw Marquis Grissom, all four of these guys, major uh, players for the club, all traded in a three-day span in April, right before the 1995 season. So that really gutted the team 
almost completely and guaranteed that there was not going to be any sort of repeat for the 1994 team in terms of success. So we saw just a complete fire sale occur as a result of the 1994 strike. And then on top of that, other issues started popping up with trying to cut salary after the disastrous 1994 season. We saw the Expos attempt to make a change in how they ran their payroll. They wanted to pay American players in Canadian money, and that caused a lot of blowback from the American-based players. So just to give you an example, if you were making a million dollars, if your contract called for a million dollars, if you were to be paid in Canadian dollars, that would have equaled only $600,000 in U.S. currency. So this was a major issue for the players. It left a lot of uh, sour taste in an already bad situation that had been developing in Montreal in terms of trying to attract top talent. We saw the team just completely gutted. They had an $18.8 million payroll, and we see that drop to almost a million dollars by the 1995 season. So it's estimated overall that Montreal lost about $6 million because of the strike that season. And that's from television revenue, that's from team revenue, that's from, you know, uh, complete just salaries for scouts and employees. It was just a complete mess for the squad. So that really hurt the team's chances. That 1994 strike caused so many issues that really, like I said, drove that coffin nail, that major coffin nail into the team's future. So that brings us to reason number three why the Montreal Expos ended up meeting an untimely end. And that goes around team ownership, particularly a gentleman named Jeffrey Loria. Miami fans know him well, and you're about to as well. (laughs) So let's just take a quick trip back. We saw stadium issues be a major issue. We saw the 1994 strike be a major issue. Now let's talk about the team's ownership. We know that that original ownership group that established the Montreal Expos in 1969 that was headed by Charles Bronfman, Bronfman ended up selling his stake, he was the majority holder, selling the team in 1991 to a local owner named Claude Brucheau. And Claude Brucheau became one of the uh, principal owners of the club moving forward, but he only held the club for eight years. And after that disastrous strike, He decided in 1999 that he did not want to own the Expos anymore, and he ended up selling his share to an American art dealer named Jeffrey Loria. Jeffrey Loria ended up owning almost 94% of the team in the first two years because other members of the ownership group were really trying to jump ship and they ended up selling their shares to him. So Jeffrey Loria had almost complete control of the Montreal Expos just two years into his ownership. Now, when he bought the team, he knew what he was getting into. He had two major issues to solve. Number one was he had a stadium that needed replacement, and he also had a team that had a very low payroll that needed a way back to be able to keep guys on the roster who could help them win. So Loria put together a strategy to arguably save the Expos. That's certainly debatable, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So his plan to fix the team once he took over was, number one, he went to the local government and said, I need you to help me pay for a new stadium. We can't survive without a new stadium. 
politicians immediately were like, we are not interested in building a new stadium. We're still on the hook for Olympic Stadium. No, thank you. And so Loria decided, okay, I guess I'm going to have to find a way to be able to raise the money otherwise. And so he ended up making some really bad decisions. One of them, one of the biggest ones, was he went to the TV networks that were broadcasting the games and decided to renegotiate the contracts to get more money and said, I am, if you want the rights to be able to broadcast these games, you're going to have to pay me X amount more. And it was such a high amount that immediately the networks were like, we're not paying that. Forget it. No way. And so what we saw was the Expos almost overnight not have anybody to televise their games, particularly in English. There was a partner that they were able to work with to broadcast the games in French, which is great for the Canadian side of the fanship, but there were also a large English-speaking population Canada and in the United States that all of a sudden were not going to be able to watch Expos games anymore in English. And that caused a large part of the fan base to go away. So we saw, really just overnight, the team got worse under Loria's ownership. He tried to be able to fix the situation by, I guess, uh, bullying his way through to be able to get more money from TV contracts, from trying to get the city to be able to put up more money to be able to put together a new stadium. But the situation was really bad. Loria started to discuss bankruptcy as an issue. He went to Major League Baseball and said, I don't think I can keep this floated. There is a lot of uh, debate about whether Loria had any uh, desire to save the team in the first place after buying them or if his plan all along was to get Montreal's team sold to another city. We'll leave that to the conspiracy theorists. But... Major League Baseball had been noticing the issue that had been going on in Montreal. They saw that there was probably an impasse in terms of being able to keep a healthy uh, presence there. And so Major League Baseball decided to discuss contraction uh, for one of the first times in its history. And they put up the Montreal Expos and the Minnesota Twins as two teams that they felt needed to be contracted. And it was a vote that they were going to bring to the owners to X two teams from Major League Baseball. Now, the thing that saved Minnesota was that the courts got involved and they stepped in and said, the Twins Stadium lease is still active and you can't contract a club where that is the case. And so Minnesota was able to get out of the contraction vote because of that clause, but Montreal was still on the table because that didn't apply to them. So Jeffrey Loria is working with baseball to try and find a way to get the Expos out of the city. We saw a deal start to emerge after the 2001 season. The Florida Marlins were owned by a guy named John Henry. John Henry was the leader of a group of investors that ended up buying the Boston Red Sox for $700 million. But he couldn't own the Red Sox and the Marlins uh, at the same time. Uh, the MLB didn't allow for owners to own two MLB teams. So to try to get two birds with one stone, the MLB arranged a deal where basically they approved the purchase of the Boston Red Sox by John Henry's group. And then they said to Jeffrey Loria, look, you sell the Expos to a separate ownership group. 
for 120 million, we'll make sure you get 38 and a half million of that back to you. And then you can buy the Marlins. So we had kind of a three-way deal between the MLB, John Henry, and Jeffrey Loria. So we had a separate ownership group that was interested in bringing baseball back to Washington, D.C. by the Expos. Jeffrey Loria got quite a bit of money from that deal, $38.5 million. And then he turned around and got the rights to the Florida Marlins. So I guess everybody's happy, except for the fans in Montreal. <laughs> so uh, Henry ends up uh, getting the Red Sox. Jeffrey Loria gets the Marlins, and Montreal is left with nothing. And Jeffrey Loria, I guess to add insult to injury, as he's planning his move to Miami, he took everything with him from the Montreal's uh, franchise. He took the the front office uh, furniture. He took the computers. He took all the scouting reports. He took all the injury reports. He took everything that it took to run that club and brought it to Miami to be able to fund his new team or to support his new team. Now, like I said, there are a lot of people that feel that Jeffrey Loria never had any intention to keep um, a team in Montreal. Uh, but certainly, certainly, we see Jeffrey Loria's management style translate to the Florida Marlins now. And certainly his name down here is synonymous with swear words for the Marlins fans in my life. And as I've learned since living here, it was bad. And not to go too far off the Marlins, but basically Jeffrey Loria, when he took over the Florida Marlins, went to Miami policymakers and said, we need a new stadium for the Florida Marlins, just like he had done in Montreal. But the difference was he was able to convince public officials that this is going to bring a lot of money to the city. This is going to help raise just standard of living. It's going to be great for Miami. Help me build a new stadium. And they agreed to fund 70% of a new ballpark in Miami that was going to cost $634 million. So <clears throat> the city took on ownership of the development of the stadium. The local government put in hundreds of millions of dollars to fund this project. They finished the stadium, and then it was revealed that Jeffrey Loria and his Florida Marlins Club were making such a substantial profit from this arrangement that they could have handled building the stadium themselves. So there was a lot of anger in the community over this, that we footed the bill for 70% of this. And it's something that you could have afforded to be able to do without us. Oh, so the local community has been stuck paying for this new stadium through taxes and it just hasn't been good. And on top of that, this new stadium hasn't really reaped any benefits for Miami. Uh, attendance hasn't increased. We haven't seen any real financial or economic benefit from this new stadium. And that was all listed as part of the reasons why Miami should invest in a new stadium for the Marlins. And so Jeffrey Loria certainly, um, through some dishonesty, has left his mark on Miami baseball as well, and certainly is not well-liked in Montreal either. I guess we could consider him a villain of baseball, and maybe that's certainly a series that we might start in the future. We'll see. But look, overall, man, it just didn't end well for Montreal. And the three reasons that I put forward to you for their demise – Number one, like I said, we had a situation with stadium issues, as always seems to pop up. We saw the 1994 strike really take its toll on team interest, on interest in baseball as a whole by the fans in Montreal and overall support really dropped 
And then we see a really disastrous ownership change to Jeffrey Loria, and that really ended any hope of keeping a team in Montreal. So what happened to the club? Are there any uh, vestiges of the team left? Well, yeah, actually there are. I had mentioned it previously a little bit ago. The MLB was instrumental in making sure that an ownership group that they backed bought the club. They ended up having them play in Montreal a little bit for the 2002 season. They played 22 home games. They also played in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, It was, you know, kind of a chance for them to be able to find a permanent home. They eventually settled on moving the Expos to Washington, D.C., and they became the Nationals for the 2005 season. And the Nationals have enjoyed relatively quick success since moving there. They won a World Series in 2019. And that technically is the only World Series title by this Expos Nationals conglomeration that now exists. So that is the legacy of the Montreal Expos. They are now based in Washington as the Nationals. But folks, fear not, there are some rumblings of baseball coming back to the city of Montreal. It's an exciting thing. There have been some rumors that the Tampa Bay Rays may end up Um, doing a hybrid season where half of their time will be spent in Tampa and the other half could end up being played in Montreal, a new type of uh, fandom of team ownership that could be split between cities. We saw just this last November, Major League's Baseball's, excuse me, Major League Baseball's Executive Council. They heard a formal presentation from a group of Montreal investors about setting up a season-sharing plan with Tampa Bay officials. So there's actually a proposal in the works to make this happen. Now, no action was taken by the Executive Council, and that's because of the current CBA, but it could be revisited soon, and it may be a part of the talks that are going on right now as part of the current strike. Rob Manfred actually said this at the end of these meetings. He said, quote, the council didn't come to a conclusion, but really almost exclusively because of the pressing of other business. It's a complicated topic. We just have a lot out there right now. More to follow on that one, end quote. So it's a little exciting because there is official, there's an official presentation, there's an official proposal to make this happen. And basically how it would work with the Rays would plan to play in two new open air stadiums and the team would start the season in Tampa Bay and then they would relocate to Montreal around June. And that solves the weather issues that Montreal has had to deal with. Now, in order for this to happen, there would have to be an official change to Major League Baseball's bylaws. So that is a complication that would have to be overcome. But Montreal obviously is a very desirable place to put a team. Not only do they have a long history of supporting baseball, but Montreal is a huge city. It's home to about 4 million people. That's more than any metro area in the U.S. or Canada without a professional baseball team. So certainly a desirable place to make this happen. So we're going to see whether it's with this this raise split where we see time in Tampa Bay and in Montreal be the solution, or in future expansion talks, if the MLB decides to go to 32 teams, Montreal is going to be in the discussion, certainly. And a lot of it is going to depend on the stadium situation, I'm sure. But I think it's very likely that we're going to see an MLB presence in Montreal again. And it might be sooner than you think. So there's a little hope that we're going to end on for baseball in Montreal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for sticking with me through another episode of Baseball Team Autopsies, where we've been able to discuss the Montreal Expos. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Just as a reminder, we do have a monthly mailbag coming up in two weeks. If you have questions that you'd like me to answer, uh, anything related to baseball, please send me a question. You can contact me on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can find me at Rounders Podcast. You can send me an email at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a voicemail just by looking in the show notes below. You could actually uh, leave a voice note, and I will play it on a future episode. So if you have questions, send them to me. We have a great mailbag scheduled coming up. Remember, too, if you'd like to support the show, it would mean so much to me. You can leave a one-time good game tip on any of the, the cash payment apps that you use. That's The links are all in the show notes. If you'd like to become a regular subscriber, you can become a monthly premium member. You'll get access to our bonus episode, This Week in Baseball History, which comes out every Wednesday, along with a list of other premium features that you'll get to enjoy by joining. So if you're interested in helping me grow this show and investing financially, just go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. And you can sign up for the weekly newsletter and choose the level of support that you'd like to give. Links to do any of the things I mentioned are right there in the show notes. Well, folks, we've reached the end of our road. Thank you so much for sticking with me. And remember what we always say when we end the show, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>